Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week we take a look at a dangerous chemical that is more frequently being found in our water supply. Per and polyfluorolycol substances have been part of modern life for decades. Commonly known as PFAS or forever chemicals, they're leaching into water supplies around the state. A map of known contamination sites put together by the PFAS project shows 13 sites in Arizona where PFAS are found in groundwater, and that doesn't include six wells that recently tested positive in the Prescott area. To get a better idea about the problem, we spoke with Alyssa Cordner, co-director of the PFAS Project Lab. She began our conversation by explaining what this class of chemical is, and what they do once they're in our bodies. PFAS are a very broad class of chemicals. Uh, it depends a little bit how you define them, but estimates are upwards of 12,000 chemicals in this class. So we're talking about a huge number of chemicals, and we know a lot about a very small number of chemicals in that class, a few dozen. This broad class of chemicals has in general, pretty similar chemistries that mean that they are bioaccumulative. They can accumulate in the body. They are persistent, so they don't break down in the body. And they are toxic to many different organ systems, ranging from our liver system to our immune function to various aspects of reproduction and the development of a healthy fetus and a healthy baby. And they appear to have these concerning health effects at really low levels of exposure. The US EPA just updated their health advisory levels for two of the most widely studied PFAS, PFOA and PFOS, and the levels, the EPA calls them quote unquote near zero levels. Uh, they are um, below one part per trillion. That's the level that the EPA says, here's the safe level, and then anything above it presumably is concerning. Obviously, we want to avoid these, it sounds like, but we can't. So what are the common ways you and I, because 98% of us have them de at detectable levels in our bodies, how did we get them in our bodies? Well, PFAS are ubiquitous because they are very useful chemicals. They have some chemistries that make them really good at acting as surfactants, so allowing chemicals to spread out into really thin layers. Um, they have some great properties in terms of repelling water and repelling grease. So they are used really broadly in all types of consumer products, uh, ranging, of course, from your sort of nonstick cookware and water repellent outdoor gear to some uses that might surprise folks like dental floss or COVID PPE, COVID masks. They are also really widely uh, contaminating drinking water around the country and around the world, um, both through industrial sources of contamination. So for example, a chemical company that produces or uses PFAS, uh, lots of paper and textile processing, lots of things in the wire and semiconductor industries. They're also widely used in certain types of firefighting foam, specifically foams that are used to fight high-intensity oil and gas um, fires. And because facilities that have the potential for those types of fires also have to train uh, for those incidents frequently, for decades, firefighters were spraying PFAS-laden foam once a month as part of their trainings. 
And so they have contaminated the groundwater and surface waters near military facilities, former Department of Defense sites, and airports around the country as well. And then one other area of exposure that's quite common is through food. It could be through the food packaging, but it also could be through uh, water that is applied as irrigation, water that falls as rainwater, or from the soil. If the soil has had industrial wastewater treatment sludge applied. Um, and, and that for decades was talked about as a beneficial use. So food and water, obviously those are ingested, but you mentioned outdoor gear, which now makes me think of almost everything I own. Is it a contact issue also, or do you have to ingest it? That's a great question. Most of the research focuses on ingested exposures, through drinking water or food. But the potential for exposure through dermal uh, contact with the skin or even inhalation is an important area of research as well. So is there a safe amount of PFAS exposure? Because it seems like almost no matter what I do, I'm going to run across it or it's going to run across me. <laughs> right. It, it will be there regardless of what you do as, a, as an individual consumer. The best available Research that we have suggests that even quite low levels of PFAS can be concerning in terms of population level health effects. The levels that can lead to those population level effects appear to be quite low. The National Academies recently completed a report that looked at PFAS exposure and clinical guidance where they identify levels of exposure for more highly impacted populations and then they suggest, okay, if say, say you're drinking water, you know is highly contaminated with PFAS due to proximity to industrial sources or a, a firefighting foam discharge site, it might mean that your doctor should be doing some extra screening for you. So maybe you check your thyroid or your cholesterol levels more often. There's a whole list of different health screenings that are recommended for folks who might have um, higher level of exposures. I think the larger point about this ubiquity of PFAS contamination is since even very low levels are concerned for human health, we really should be thinking about an overall reduction and eventual elimination in the production and use of PFAS chemicals, seeking out alternatives that are truly safer in virtually every uh, use scenario for these chemicals. When you say a reduction in use, the city of Tucson has some treatment plants trying to clean up some known plumes of PFAS in, in groundwater. So that's on the utility level. But somebody listening to this says, well, I need to do more. Is there anything we as individuals can do to minimize our exposure? Well, the best thing we as individuals can do is to encourage policymakers and decision makers to regulate these chemicals more efficiently, to turn off the tap of new production and emissions, to reduce our overall exposure. That's really the most effective thing that we can do because the use of these chemicals is so widespread in consumer and industrial applications. There are some things that individuals can do if they're concerned about their own personal exposure or their family's exposure. Things like if you know that your drinking water might have levels of PFAS in it, you can do some sort of water filtration. Consuming less food that's prepackaged uh, can also potentially reduce your exposure because we know that, for example, a lot of fast food wrappers or food packaging materials have uh, PFAS in them. 
researchers who I really trust who study these things say, doesn't mean that you need to throw out your nonstick pans and your rain jackets now, but the next time you do need to replace them, think about buying cast iron instead of nonstick cookware, or think about seeking out apparel manufacturers that are committed to PFAS-free production. You were just talking about agriculture, especially here in southern Arizona, but really all over the country. Mm -hmm. We get a lot of agriculture from other countries. I'm sure this is a global problem. Is the U.S. better, worse, on par with everybody else? That's a great question. And one of the things that we know about PFAS contamination is that we don't know where most of it is. Uh, It's expensive to test for PFAS, it's time consuming, it's resource intensive. And so the places where we know contamination is, that's a huge underestimation of where we would look for it if we really tested everywhere. My colleagues and I have developed a research model called presumptive PFAS contamination, which basically says, If you don't have high quality testing in a specific location, say the state of Arizona, there are certain places where based on the best available data, we should presume that there's contamination until you know otherwise. And you can use these locations of facilities to prioritize your testing or prioritize remediation efforts. And so that's focusing on the places where fluorinated firefighting foam have been discharged, locations of certain types of industrial facilities, and then places that have waste that might contain PFAS, landfills, incinerators, wastewater treatment plants. All right. Well, thanks for setting this up for us and giving us some some background to start with. Yes, of course. That was Alyssa Cordner, co-director of the PFAS Project Lab. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. We're looking at efforts this week to keep per- and polyfluoroalkyl substances, or PFAS, out of our water supply and what we can do once they're in it. In Tucson, like many places, wells that have been contaminated with PFAS are located near airports and military installations. Wells near Tucson International Airport and Davis-Monthan Air Force Base have tested positive and Tucson Water is trying to remove the chemicals from the aquifer. Tucson Water Director John Kamik met us at a site where the company is doing that work. It sits on a half-acre lot surrounded by houses. Kamik started by explaining where we were. All right, we're located at what's called the Central Tucson PFAS Project. This was a, a collaborative between the city of Tucson and the state of Arizona through the Department of Environmental Quality. Uh, this is just north of davis Monthan Airfield uh, in a neighborhood here. And this was an old well, production well, that was used by the city of Tucson many, many years ago. Uh, and we provided it to the state of Arizona to do some testing on some PFAS treatment mechanisms and to start to affect the plume that's coming off the base. So when people hear this is an old well, it's not in use in the sense of these houses that are, you know, we're in the middle of a neighborhood. They're not getting water out of this well at this point. No, they are not. This is this is a well that's been removed from production uh, several years ago. And uh, so the water that is actually going through this treatment process, it's just, this is more of an environmental project right now. So the water that's leaving this treatment process is being discharged after it's clean uh, to the washes around here and it's traveling in the wash. So walk me through, over here on our left are a bunch of pipes labeled raw water um, and then we're standing thankfully in the shadow uh, because it's a hot sunny day of some big tanks here. So walk me through what we're looking at. 
So what we're looking at is what's called an ion exchange facility uh, for PFAS treatment. So what we have at this site is we have a well. That well then pumps the groundwater that has PFAS compounds in it. It then uh, goes through some filtration to remove any sand or anything that's from the aquifer. Uh, but it is containing PFAS at, at concentrations. And then it goes into what are called these large vessels. And these vessels are filled with a media, almost like little ball bearings. And that media is specifically designed uh, to hold and absorb PFAS compounds. So it's doing that, and then the water coming out the end is essentially PFAS-free. So obviously there's some testing on the in and the out. Exactly, so as part of our cooperation between the city and the state, Arizona Department of Environmental Quality, we provide the laboratory services uh, for the samples out here on uh, the testing of the raw water, so we know what the concentration is, and then the testing of the effluent, or the water that leaves the treatment vessels. So how much water is being run through here, for example, on a daily basis? How much are you treating? On a daily basis, uh, I would say probably about 200 to 300,000 gallons a day. So the well is pumping around 200 to 250 gallons per minute. And it, can, and it runs uh, essentially continuously. Whenever we talk about things getting filtered, as you mentioned, there's a medium in there that is bonding to the PFAS, or the PFAS is bonding to it. When it gets, for lack of a better term, full, what do you do with that medium? Because now it's full full of PFAS. Yeah, that's uh, that's what our uh, you know our partners at Arizona Department of Environmental Quality are doing. Is so they monitor the vessels uh, frequently. Uh, so when they know it's fully absorbed for PFAS, uh, then they'll make arrangements to have the media removed from the vessels and delivered to a hazardous waste facility where it's incinerated at high temperature, which destroys the PFAS compounds. I know this is a pilot project, but how effective does it appear to be? Uh, our, our partners uh, with ADEQ uh, think it's very effective right now, so we're very happy. It's been running excellent since it went online uh, earlier this year. How long do you run it as a pilot project? And maybe that's not up to Tucson Water, maybe that's up to ADEQ, but how long does this project run? Well, because, because this well and this site is in the center of what we're calling the groundwater plume that's leaving the base, I anticipate this project will run for an indefinite amount of time. But what it's doing is providing information on the effectiveness of the ion exchange media. So if and when we build other treatment plants in this area to deal with what's coming off of Davis-Monthan, uh, we'll have it dialed in uh, the right media to be the most effective media that used uh, for treatment and mitigation of the groundwater. Assuming you all and your partners see on the outflow and what you like over time, as you said, this is the beginning of, a, of an experiment, does this well ever come back online or is it just offline forever? No, I don't see this well coming back online. I see this well being part of an environmental uh, remediation program that will eventually be developed uh, for to deal directly with the PFAS issues uh, coming off the base front north at Davis Mountain. When you say things being developed in the future, is this the future that these will be dotting the Tucson landscape or there'll be a larger facility? How does that work? It's, that's a great question. Uh, what we see nationally, and I'll just throw this out here, is that these types of facilities will be dotting hundreds of communities throughout the landscape, not just Tucson. So as we said, we are standing just north of davis Mountain Air Force Base. So far, our friends have not flown by, but I'm sure <laughs> they will in a minute. But we're in the middle of a neighborhood. Why this well? This well, as a, when we started looking for the impacts of what was leaving 
the groundwater from underneath the basin entering what's called the central Tucson Basin. This well ended up being smack dab in the middle of uh, what's in the aquifer leaving the base. So it was ideal location uh, for, an, for an existing well that we weren't using to turn it into an environmental remediation project. Government question that always has to come up, who's paying for this little project? This little project is, was actually paid for by the state of Arizona. So the city provided the well and the location that met the conditions uh, to do the most effective treatment. But the state of Arizona uh, used money from what's called their Wharf Fund program to launch this uh, pilot project and get it done in a very uh, expedited uh, fashion. We've mentioned a couple times we're just north of davis Monthan. We know the Air Force and the airport have PFAS problems historically because of the firefighting foam they were using. How big a problem is PFAS here in Tucson? Well, it's affected those those parts of the aquifer that you mentioned. So north of davis Monthan, and it looks like it extends about a one to two miles uh, into our central uh, Tucson Basin, and then northwest of the Tucson International Airport, more or less where the Arizona Air National Guard is located, and that extends to the areas in that vicinity as well as underneath the Santa Cruz River. So we have a good knowledge of where PFAS is located, so we're able to avoid those areas right now. And what our main focus is um, currently is to start having remediation take place of the groundwater systems that are impacted and working with those potentially principal responsible parties that use the firefighting foam to help uh, start to participate in the cleanup of this. When you say remediation of the groundwater, does that mean someday it could be clean or will there always, in those areas where the plumes are, will there always be some background level? Yeah, ideally we'll pump until it's clean, but that could take many, many decades because we're dealing with parts per trillion, which is a whole new level of measurement compared to past environmental programs that deal with part per million or part per billion. Part per trillion is a lot of water you need to pump to treat. There's a lot of new technology being developed around a PFAS destruction. Um, so hopefully uh, technology and the advancement of technology related to PFAS will come along and help us and help other communities throughout the country uh, deal with these issues and get their aquifers back to a uh, natural state. Let me ask a Tucson-specific geology question, which you may not know. These plumes, plumes can travel through aquifers. Are they confined? Because some geology will also confine plumes. No, these, uh, the Tucson Basin is essentially considered uh, what's a a basin and range type of geology. So we have our mountain fronts uh, that are the hard rockscape, but inside between the mountain peaks, you have medium granular sands, uh, fine to coarse sands, some gravel, the stuff that's been eroding from all these mountains for millions of years. It's essentially a, a large sand bowl and, uh, and the groundwater slowly moves through the aquifer. Um, and in our community, it moves uh, generally the flow of surface water, which is from the community to the north-northwest tying to the Santa Cruz River and then out to the northwest of the county. So obviously put a facility like this in the middle of the plume, try and stop the plume from spreading over over time. Exactly, and that's why it's located here off the north-northwest corner of the base from where they used the foam. It impacted the aquifer directly underneath, but it's then now migrating in that general direction. Thanks for uh, wandering out here with us. All right, no problem. Thank you. That was John Kamik, director of Tucson Water. As he told us, the Central Tucson PFAS project is a collaboration between the city and the state. Action to remedy problems with PFAS are happening across all levels of government.
In fact, the recent Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act included $13.5 million in federal funds for PFAS remediation in Arizona. To learn more about what is being done across all levels of government, we spoke with Melanie Benish. She's the vice president of governmental affairs for the Environmental Working Group. Well, these chemicals, unfortunately, have been underregulated for a very long time. Um, and as is often the case, um, states are ahead of the EPA. Uh, the EPA is taking a lot of steps to finally regulate these chemicals in drinking water, um, to start the process of regulating them under our federal cleanup laws. Uh, but states have been moving a lot more quickly. We now have several states that have their own drinking water standards, that have uh, cleanup standards for uh, PFAS in groundwater and in soils. Uh, and then states have also, several states have taken the step to ban particular uses of PFAS, like in food packaging and cosmetics. And uh, none of those things have happened on the federal level yet. What started this momentum? Because as you said, entities, the federal government especially, have known about PFAS for decades, but we mm -hmm. never heard about it until the last few years. What got this kicked off? I think one of the biggest changes in the last decade is just we know how much more wide scale the problem is. There were some early hot spots, uh, like in West Virginia, near a DuPont plan there and in North Carolina, but it wasn't until the EPA required some testing of drinking water systems back in 2013 uh, that we started to realize that these chemicals are all over the country. And as this, those test results started to come out, then the Department of Defense had to start testing. And because of that, um, we, we now know that there's contamination on all of these military bases as well. And so more states, more municipalities have started testing. Uh, the test detection methods have gotten a lot better too. So now we can know uh, when these chemicals are present in even lower amounts. So that also has expanded the number of sites that we've been able to find. And so I think what has really changed is that um, more and more people are realizing that this is in, in their drinking water. When we talk about the polluter, if you will, that everybody mm -hmm. talks about in this case, the military, especially the Air Force um, and the firefighting foam that they've used uh, for decades, is there any move or any movement on the idea of getting some new firefighting foam? Yes. Actually, at the end of 2019, uh, Congress banned the use of PFAS and firefighting foam um, beginning in, I believe it's October of 2024. So the military has a deadline to figure out uh, which kind of firefighting foam they're gonna use to replace the firefighting foam that has PFAS. There are alternatives available that have been on the market for some time, um, but the DOD has a, a firm deadline as to when they need to make that switch. So you mentioned some of the first cases came up, West Virginia near a DuPont plant, North Carolina. We know California is a hot spot. Florida's a hot spot. Mm -hmm. How does Arizona compare to some of these other hot spots? Well, I think it's all relative uh, to the testing. We know that there are some states where there's a lot of PFAS contamination, like Michigan and New Jersey. If you look at our map, those states are sort of covered in dots, um, but that's because those states have been really proactive in testing. Um, I, I don't know that the state government in Arizona, I know they're starting to do a little bit more testing, but I don't know how far along that is. 
it's going to depend on what the testing shows. It's also going to depend on what kind of industries are concentrated in Arizona. Some are more likely than others to be using uh, PFAS chemicals like chemical manufacturing, uh, chrome plating, electroplating, uh, weather tanneries, paint facilities. Is there something that local governments, be they city, county, should be doing or can be doing while the federal government begins to work on this? Yes. At the local level, um, you can uh, think about what you're procuring. Um, So local governments can think about what they're buying and try and move away from these non-essential uses of PFAS. Um, The city of San Francisco, for example, no longer buying any carpeting that is coated in PFAS, no longer buying any food packaging coated in PFAS. Um, And then at the state level, um, states are setting really stringent drinking water regulations um, and and taking other steps to to limit PFAS and, and get it cleaned up. The city of Tucson, in conjunction with the state of Arizona, is running a pilot project on potentially cleaning up a plume of PFAS Mm -hmm. near the Air Force Base in Tucson. How realistic is it, looking across the country, because you have that nice full country view, that we can get ahead of this problem by cleaning it up? Or is this something we're just going to probably just end up shutting down a lot of wells and not adding to the problem? This is something that is probably going to differ on a case-by-case basis. Um, In some cases, it may make the most sense just to shut down that well and make sure that um, no one is drinking that water. That said, there are pretty good water filtration techniques. um, And so there are pretty good ways to get PFAS out of drinking water and make sure that people have access to safe drinking water that way. Um, But it's it's also really important to address this problem at the source. Um, We can't just clean our way out of the problem. We need to reduce the amount of PFAS that's getting put into those source waters in the first place. When we're back again dealing with the federal government, because the EPA is starting to get on this and DOD is starting to get on this, is the necessary money there? There is at the moment a lot of money available for this. There was $10 billion included in the bipartisan infrastructure deal that passed in the fall specifically for emerging contaminants. So that would include PFAS and other sort of under-regulated chemicals um, that are meant to be used for infrastructure upgrades for drinking water treatment or source water treatment uh, to try and tackle this problem. So there is some money available, but that said, it's, it's a big problem and it's going to take a lot of resources to address. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That was Melanie Benish of the Environmental Working Group. And that's the buzz for this week. Tune in next week as we look at bipartisan efforts to restore confidence in elections ahead of the midterms. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer with production help from Samantha Larned. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.